Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 172, recorded for the week of July 6, 2022. The Cloud Pod masquerades with GKA Autopilot. Good evening, Ryan, Peter, and Jonathan. Full house once again, two weeks in a row. I don't know what to do with myself. Don't get used to it. Yeah, feels like a record. Uh, well, it uh, was. I hope you guys all had a fantastic Fourth of July weekend. It was it was lovely. Three day weekends are the best and the worst of times because uh, they're good for the day off and then bad for getting back to work and having four days and five days and four is just not great. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I will I will tell you right now that Amazon Amazon apparently took the holiday off too because there was nothing mantra worthy for AWS. Uh, which has not happened in a while. I mean, there was a while there for where we would see occasionally they'd have nothing, but uh, it doesn't happen very often. So we have some general news, and then we have some stories to break into with GCP and Azure, so we'll just get into it. Uh, I apologize for my audio tonight. I do not have my microphone because it's locked in my office, where I cannot get to because my wife has the key. So <laughs> it's a bummer. <laughs> uh, so apologies to Elliot for that, uh, who edits our show, but, and for all of our listeners who listen to my tinny voice on this Logitech headset, so apologies for that. Enhance. Enhance. Yeah. Enhance. Uh, well, uh, first article comes from uh, VentureBeat, who reports that 68% of orgs plan to rely more on AWS managed services in the next 12 months. And, uh, you know, all the people out there are screaming, but the lock-in. Uh, but uh, <laughs> apparently the tech talent uh, crunch, which, by the way, Mitch McConnell said this week, will, uh, is because they're spending that $1,200 in seamless money they got. And once they spend all that money, the tech talent crunch will go away which uh, oh, I don't know if nice. that's true, Mitch. Uh, sorry. Uh, but apparently it's made it difficult for companies to hire people knowledgeable enough to build, scale, and optimize AWS, or at least as quickly and as cheaply as they would like it to be. And to address this, 68% of them are planning to be more reliant on cloud-managed or professional services over the next 12 months per 451 Research, which surveyed 950 organizations. So not a huge amount of them, but a significant portion. The report also highlights that more, the more sophisticated AWS customers are even using more managed services. Uh, and then VentureBeat should feel bad and do better next time for the survey because it's just not great in general. But uh, overall, 68% more managed services, which makes sense if you're thinking more cloud-native, in my opinion. So I think that's more of the driver than the tech talent crunch. But what do you guys think? That's what people want from cloud, right? They want they want the providers to to take the things they have to do themselves and turn them into services. It's really- it's funny because that's the the article completely missed that. Like this is a negative thing. Like oh, we want to use AWS, but we want to you know AWS to run it for us was sort of like the the undertone. And I'm like no no no, <laughs> you don't understand. I suck at running Kafka. <laughs> I want yeah. someone else to run Kafka. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I want. Guess what? Yeah. You suck at running Kafka. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't do it either. Yeah, and I mean, there's all, all managed services also are not created equal. So there's lots of managed services based on portable software. But it didn't say just managed services. There's also professional services like our friends at Foghorn. So that's Yay. yeah, you know, you can you can pay them to do the the dirty work mm-hmm. for you, and then it's a yeah, managed service us. to you. It's just not a managed service to Peter. Which is okay. Yeah. Too. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Then it's then it's hard. It's toil for me, but I'm happy to do it for my customers. Well, I mean, that's the reality. Is that that's you know, with with a shortage, you you go to the, after the places that have those specialties, those concentrated knowledge. You've invested in that, and especially if you're on a project that might be a little bit more temporary, or it's going to have a different you know a different a different engagement up front, and then maybe turn into just support. It's a great great model and a great option. So. 
Why not? Because lock-in, Ryan. That's why not. <laughs> but the lock-in. But the lock-in. No. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're looking for those managed services, maybe stay away from Microsoft, according to this article from Information. They're reporting that Microsoft, due to a confluence of crises, has been operating in the yellow zone, meaning its data center regions have less than the normal levels of servers available to you. Uh, this started, of course, in March 2020, 2020 under the crush of COVID when they had ran out of capacity due to massive adoption of Teams, if you recall, and many outages forcing companies to wait and launch and update apps, as well as Microsoft telling you that if you're a new customer, to go pound sand, and to if you're an existing customer, we'll reserve some capacity for you. Uh, now, two years later, though, Azure is still apparently suffering from limited server capacity. Uh, per two current Microsoft managers dealing with the issue and a customer engineer who are all, of course, anonymous in the report from the information. Fantastic reporting. Uh, and a half a dozen Azure data centers capacity expected to remain limited until early next year, including key data centers in Washington State, Europe, and Asia. And this could have big impacts on customers from IoT customers to larger retailers like Walmart or AT&T. Of course, the global shortage of chips is the biggest driver of this and other components that they may need to build servers. Uh, and the chip shortage, though, is apparently impacting Microsoft harder as they were struggling to provide enough capacity even before the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, focusing on building out new data in regions has further strained server capacity for Azure and their existing data centers, which just seems easy to me. Don't build new data center regions until you get your capacity problem fixed, but apparently that's not a strategy they want to go with. Uh, Microsoft does apparently predict that things will improve this summer for most of their regions, except for those three I mentioned earlier. Uh, and this limit apparently is not just related to Azure, as Google and AWS have also suffered similar capacity constraints, particularly in Frankfurt, uh, as well as the Google Singapore region. Uh, and I can tell you that other regions that I've dealt with in Google have also had some strain, strange capacity resources as well mm-hmm. uh, in my experiences with them recently. So uh, this does seem to be a problem. Uh, it's impacting Google and, and Azure just a bit more. Uh, I think AWS in the big regions is not so impacted, but the smaller ones, uh, they definitely are seeing a squeeze as well. And so, you know, I don't know when this capacity problem is going to go away or the chip shortage is going to be over. I mean, a recession might fix this problem for everybody. Uh, we'll see. There's lots yeah. of GPUs for sale right now. Yes, there are. <laughs> Maybe they can use those. The joy of Bitcoin crashing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, the supply chain has been huge on a lot of people and you know like you don't hear it so much from amazon and i don't know if you know that's related to the you know the 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 commerce site amazon.com and the over provisioning they did as far as that capacity if aws went the same route and sort of just has a bunch of stock plus they're manufacturing their own chips and maybe they have a little bit more control but uh everyone else (laughs) is screwed you know there's a there's a this theory that there's these these economies out there where when uh, supply is lower than demand, prices go up. I wonder if we'll uh, see that happen here. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, we already seen the... it with Google. <laughs> so prices <laughs> have gone up. We've seen it. Uh, we have not seen it on AWS side or on Azure side, though. So, so. It's, it's probably happening in the spot market, though, even if even if it doesn't, even if they don't put prices up for the reserved instances. Oh, like, what if spot becomes yeah. premium? Yeah. Spot becomes the thing you buy because you can't buy because you have the to. normal, and so <laughs> yeah. you buy it at ten bucks mm-hmm. an hour because you, nothing's available. One what you can get a dollar an hour. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. I I stopped using the spot market for some of my use cases just a little too volatile. Uh, and went with reserved instances instead. But yeah, I suspect that it's a challenge on some of these providers for sure, where the spot market's just not reliable in any capacity concern that you would need. And so, how mm-hmm. do you address that? You know, the bigger issue to me is it, what are you, what happens when you're an auto scaling or auto scale set 
where you need to scale up and that capacity isn't there. Mm-hmm. And you know, now all of a sudden auto scaling becomes a danger zone in some of these regions where you know you're giving up capacity because you don't need it right now, but when you do need it, it won't be available to you because the region's out of capacity. That's yeah, scary too. I mean, that's the same reality in a data center as well, right? The the biggest difference is that you can provision and scale your you know infrastructure a lot quicker in a cloud managed service provider. And then, you know, if you're a smaller company trying to get a, a like a single 2U server now to double your capacity, good luck. Yeah. I, I guess I guess if you don't have workloads that have to be pinned to particular regions, you know, you can kind of follow the clock and, and use the off hours in another region to do whatever work you need to do. But if, if you do need to have data centers close to your customers yeah. uh, 20, 24 hours a day. Not yeah. I mean, with data sovereignty issues now. It's it's harder and harder to just move compute around the world if your data has to be you know in certain regional restrictions. Yeah. So so what happens when AWS launch um, in like a data center in in orbit? Like where does the data sovereignty line? Only situation? space like, customers, man. Only space customers. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> a little green men only. Yeah. I'm like, if so, if the satellites over the US, then you can then you can <laughs> serve US data. Otherwise, you can't. Like, just, Sorry, you can't. <laughs> Your request waiting for another forty-five minutes for the satellite to pass over again. <laughs> I would take that project on just so I could watch the auditor's face as I explained it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try to explain that one to your parent. Yeah, your, your in-laws. That'd be a good one. All right. Well, let's give over AWS because they gave us nothing other than lightning round topics. And move on to GCP, who's announcing the Apogee Advanced API Security uh, due to API security becoming more important than ever before with increasing API attacks and traffic volumes. Uh, The in-preview Advanced API Security is a comprehensive set of API security-enabled organizations to more easily detect security threats. There are two comprehensive key functionalities included in this launch, including identify API misconfigurations, and detecting bots. Uh, apparently, misconfigured APIs are one of the leading response reasons for API security incidents. And in 2017, Gartner said that by 2022, API abuses would be the most frequent attack vector resulting in breaches for enterprise web apps. Uh, misconfiguration is the number one cause of data breaches per fugue and sonotype. And advanced API security can make it easier for API teams to identify API proxies that do not conform to their security standards to help identify APIs that are misconfigured or experiencing abuse. Advanced API security regular assessment assesses managed APIs and provides API teams with recommended actions when configuration issues are detected. Uh, and then, of course, bots are your second biggest issue on API traffic. The advanced security uses pre-configured rules to help provide API teams an easier way to identify malicious bots within API traffic. Each rule represents a different type of unusual traffic from a single IP address. If an API traffic pattern meets any of those rules, uh, advanced API reports it as a bot. Advanced API security can also speed up the process of identifying data breaches by identifying bots that successfully resulted in the HTTP 200 OK response codes. Uh, and all I can think about the bot side is, isn't that sort of what an API would always look like? Because if I have a server in my data center that's calling an API for data, it would be coming from the same IP address and potentially be getting HTTP 200 OK responses and then flagged as a bot. So I look forward to that in my B2B integration troubleshooting in the future. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, how much fun will that be? <laughs> It is a bot, but it's my bot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the bot and that I'm okay with, yeah. Whitelist. And it'll work by the time I get around to the support case, right? It, <laughs> but, you know, because then the restriction will have been lifted or timed out. I'd imagine this is for front doors for anonymous uh, traffic, right? 
that's what you do. Yeah, I mean, just, I wish it would specify that in the article, though. Of course, you know, it just says this is what you do to detect bots. And like, yeah, but some bots are the use case I'm selling <laughs> to the world. Uh, and so, you know, again, I think it's one of those. On the surface, it sounds logical, but I think there are some some gotchas that you need to be careful of if you're doing B two B or doing things that look botish uh, before you just go enable this. Yeah, what if your service mesh did that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great for your service mesh. <laughs> Sorry, everything is down. Everything is machine to machine. That's yeah. it. Turn it all off. Yeah. yeah. We're done. In six months, I will be coming with a story of how I checked all the security boxes and had this horrible experience because this is one of those things that I would just like, oh, no, security good. Click, 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 and then be screwed. Yeah. So why do you think it's not branded as a WAF for Apogee? Because it's effectively what it is, right? Uh, you know, that's a good question why they don't call it a WAF. I mean, I, you definitely think the bot protection is a WAF type feature. Mm-hmm. I think the the misconfiguration components, you know, specifically around API proxies and some of that, you could you could sort of argue are security-related configuration issues. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the bot detector seems more like a WAF function, I agree. Yeah. I don't I don't quite understand what the, the API misconfiguration is like you know, I was thinking back. Is it are they talking about like the, the Capital One S three bucket type issue? Or are they like what exactly are they referring to as far as misconfigurations? They're talking about things like security headers or enforcement of cores, things like that, where you didn't necessarily have to check the box to say require um, source domains or source pages to be these particular domains. Okay, so, so just having like a core setting missing, or, or yeah, I guess it's, okay. it's kind of like a. It's, it's almost like a usability issue. That's if the features already existed. I assume those features already existed, but but they weren't um, they weren't sort of in your face enough to turn them on. <laughs> well, Google's logging client library for Go has a new update. The version one point five adds new features and bug fixes for structured logging capabilities that complete last year's efforts to enrich structured logging support. New features include a faster and more robust way to detect and capture Google Cloud resources that the app is running on. Uh, and a question, how often does it need to look this up? Because does that change that often? <laughs> uh, needs automatic sourcing location detection to support log observability for debugging and troubleshooting. Uh, W3C header transparent uh, tra- traceparent for capturing tracing info with the log entries. Better control over batch ingestion of the log entries by supporting the partial success flag with logger instances support for out-of-the-process ingestion with redirection of the logs to std out and std error using a structured logging format. Go, go. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I don't do logging anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you, don't, you know why the logging things... anonymous? You just don't yeah. talk about logging yeah. anymore? Log, yeah, log is anonymous. Right. Yeah, once a logger, always a logger. That's right. Um, and it's, you know, like, it's one of those things where when it sounds like a, like, ho-hum like snooze fest of a story until you're trying to write an application that runs go in a container and you're like, what, you, what do you mean? I can't just get it to stand, <laughs> stand it out, stand it there, you know, easily. Yeah. And you have to do all these mockinizations to get it out there. And then, you know, enforcing, you know, structured logging patterns, I think is, has to be the next go-to in developer patterns just because no one's used to it yet. And everyone's trying to do these very sophisticated logging, you know, through their elk stacks or whatever's next tracing. And no one, it's, it's not built into any of the frameworks, and so they don't know the patterns. They don't know how to do it. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see a, the next Python release just ban the print statement entirely. <laughs> but <laughs> to oh, force oh. force people to use sensible logging libraries, and not just print things out on, in an unstructured way. But then, how would I debug? 
<laughs> well, you'd, you'd redirect it to stand it out and then you'd, you'd use something else. <laughs> Got to here. <laughs> exit, exit one, exit two, exit three. <laughs> what variables do you think you have? <laughs> Well, if you have those metrics and you like to put them in a graphing solution, uh, cloud monitoring metrics, uh, which is Google's cloud-native uh, monitoring solution, formerly known as Stackdriver, are now available to you uh, in the managed service for Prometheus. Uh, and apparently, according to the Cloud Native Foundation uh, community, there is 86% chance you're using Prometheus if you're cloud-native. As Prometheus is becoming a standard, developers are becoming fluent in PromQL, the Prometheus query language. And since you're taught your developers PromQL already, Google is now allowing you to query Google Cloud monitoring metrics via the same interface. Uh, and that's because Google uses the same backend time series database as Prometheus, so it's easy to do. Being able to view all your metrics in one language allows you to compare spikes between Redis caches and cloud load balancing or compute engine and pub sub backlog sizes. In addition to Prom SQL uh, for metrics, managed service for Prometheus offers open source monitoring combined with the scale and reliability of Google services with additional benefits including hybrid and multi-cloud support so you can centralize all your metrics across clouds and on-premise deployments. A two-year retention of all Prometheus metrics including in the price, uh, cost-effective monitoring on a per-sample basis, easy cost identification attribution using cloud monitoring, and your choice of collection with managed collection for those who want a completely hands-off Prometheus experience and a self-deployed collection for those who want to keep using existing Prometheus configurations. All this tells me is that the cloud monitoring was probably already had Prometheus or a very like time-based series engine on the back end. <laughs> that if this was easy to do, it's so like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it says they're using the exact same time series database that Prometheus uses on the back end, so mm -hmm. that's how they're able to yeah. do this. Yeah. And so this is sort of a gimme. 86% is rather a large number. It's if you assume that every site runs on Kubernetes, right, you can you can extract to that leap, but yeah, that's... I mean, yeah. I mean that's, again, it's a cloud-native community, so 86% of them is probably you know all Kubernetes users. So it's, yeah. it makes some sense when you think about it from that perspective, but... In the broader conversation of IT and SaaS and all that, I would say it's nowhere near 86%. Yeah, yeah and it, yeah. That's, that's a poll of members. That's not a poll of organizations. It's not 86% of organizations. It's Yeah, so once yeah. you've got Google, VMware, uh, IBM, all those, all those people who use Prometheus. Oh, yeah. Because that, that may skew the, the results significantly. Mm -hmm. Not a bad tool, though. No, I mean it's it's great functionality, right? Like it's you're gonna have to do the translation somewhere, and then this is an abstraction that I don't have to do anymore myself, you know, because I'm gonna have. You know, when you see uh, lots of customers using as many managed services as they possibly can, and then you see them running Prometheus on AWS instead of using CloudWatch, I think it's a little bit telling that that's a pretty solid technology that people are getting a lot of value out of, even at really large scale. I think it's fair. I think the the challenge that CloudWatch has is that custom metrics are just so gosh darn expensive. And why, right? Yeah, why are they yeah, so expensive? So why would you go down that path versus just using EC2 and running Prometheus or their managed Prometheus service now on AWS as well, uh, or Grafana managed services? So I mean, there's there's so many options for you that aren't CloudWatch that cost less money that it just makes sense for a lot of companies to go that direction. And usually the, the cloud-native managed service is the opposite, right? It, because of that scale, because they were able to architect it for scale, you get amazing cost efficacy and not, not with monitoring right now. 
Yeah. It's amazing to me that the custom metrics in CloudWatch have not come down in price since really since launch. I mean, they've been outrageously expensive since they first dropped that feature in. So it's sort of a weird area where, you know, just along with, with uh, egress traffic pricing and bandwidth pricing, you know, it, one of those areas like, hey, give us a price cut and we'd use your service more. And uh, they just don't do it. I mean, I, I don't think they should. I mean, as, as you know, uh, an internal provider of like services, like there's no incentive for providers to make this cheaper because <laughs> people are going to abuse it, whether they, you know, half the time, not even choosing to abuse it. And they're just going to send you all the data in the world. Um, yeah, I think and then just complain about the cost without any willingness to make any changes to that. I mean, AWS is fanatical customer focus, right? They would, you could argue that having to run Prometheus is a toil that I shouldn't have to do and that I just want to use the native service. I just thought of a cool extension for CloudWatch metrics. Like a a PDF, just a a packet dump extension. Just everything. (laughs) Packet dump. Full headers. Just (laughs) go. Yeah. 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 Why not? Like this. I I think the... I think the price of, of CloudWatch custom metrics is just a reflection of, of two things. One, they don't need to use it. And two, having to deal with the unpredictability of, of people who do custom things. I mean, if it's if it's a machine state or CPU, you pull it at sensible intervals. Custom metrics, people could do anything with, absolutely anything. Yeah. It could be it could be enormous lengths, it could be tiny, it could be thousands mm-hmm. a minute, it could be nothing. And so it's just, just the overhead of managing unpredictability is very expensive. I mean, you're talking to the guy who did like, you know, EC2 OS deployment metrics using custom metrics in CloudWatch just because I didn't want to write a graphing UI. <laughs> so, uh, no, absolutely. And that's, that's, yeah, exactly. And, and that's that's perfectly fair. Yeah. yeah. And you pay for it. I did. <laughs> I had a budget of 2000 and it stayed under budget. Nice. So we did. And then I turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you're in Paris, uh, Google has a new region for you in Paris, France. Europe West-9 uh, is now open. Google apparently, though, does not have enough capacity in the other regions, but yet they have enough capacity to open up a new region, so go figure. Bonjour. That's obviously an indication that the, the, the French business is more important to them than the capacity issues in the other regions. I, mean, I, think, I don't think it's actually the French business as much as it is the French government and all the noise they're making about cloud native in their country is what's mm-hmm. the, really, the bigger issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if they if they lose a customer today because they don't have that data center, then that's that's ten or fifteen years worth of loss of revenue, which grows at whatever percentage over time. So the sooner they open the data center, the sooner they get people to sign contracts, yep, the better. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, how long, how fast do customers actually spin up Google resources? Maybe they need to get trained for like, it, you know, again, if, it, if they can solve their capacity problem before customers get critical mass, then it's it's a mute issue. Get the contract, get the commitment, move on. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. 
So let's say you, uh, you're super excited about spinning up your new GKE cluster, uh, and you're ready to go only to find out your VPCs are too small and you are suffering from IP exhaustion, which is never good when you have systems that need to autoscale. Uh, and you're using GKE Autopilot now, you can translate your pod IPs to your node IPs with the new egress NAT policy with IP masquerading for pod to node IP translation in general availability. In addition, the new advanced programmable data path based off eBPF, data plane v2, for network policy and logging is also generally available. The data plane v2 provides you security via Kubernetes network policy, scalability by remote, removing IP tables and kube proxy implementations, operational benefits with network policy logging and consistency across Anthos and GKE. Reading through this article, I got in a like a I don't know like a a tailspin about like you know thinking about Kubernetes and networking and 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 its origins. And I realized that Kubernetes really is probably the last major platform that has no cloud native really built into it. It predates most of that. And, and because of that, there's really no interface with egress traffic, just none. Like they, you know, everything else you can control in, in ingress traffic, you know, traffic routing, tons of APIs and functionality within Kubernetes, but egress, nah. You can build your own with, you know, Calico and, and different things. Like you can you can manage it that way, but by default, it's just gonna nat out to whatever node IP and be done with it. Which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. I mean, other than when it uses an IP address instead of just natting. Well, so I mean the reason why this is an autopilot autopilot clusters and nowhere else is because they're using network abstractions to to you know route this behind the scenes. You know, it's not really a Kubernetes feature. It's just they're applying it to their Kubernetes backplane to manage that egress traffic, which is cool. And because this is a huge problem. Yeah. That's quite ironic, isn't it? The, the, one of the first things people will say when you ask them about cloud, cloud native <laughs> solutions is Kubernetes. Yeah. Yeah, it is the least cloud native product yeah. of all. 100%. Of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it was born out of Borg, right? So, I mean, <laughs> Borg was not designed to be cloud native. It was designed to work in Google's data centers, and they they ported it to become Kubernetes. And mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, it was its its original origins are very data center centric, where egress is probably not its concern. Yeah, yeah. And networks, you know, like you know, software defined networking was not a thing, you know, and so like very many of these concepts are completely unaware of that. Yeah, I guess it gets back to the whole cloud native and portability being at odds with each other in a way. Lock in. So which mm-hmm. which brand of Kubernetes? do you want to optimize for? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because it is very, you know, that's the answer to, to anti-cloud native and lock-in is Kubernetes. Ooh. Yep. <laughs> that's something to think about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel a blog post being ah, poorly yeah. written in my head. <laughs> that's, I think that's one of the reasons it's popular is because you can commit to a technology to build company IP around and to train your resources and something that everybody knows so you can hire them based on knowing it without committing to a platform mm-hmm. or a vendor. It's true. true. All right, and then our last Google story, uh, Google is releasing new query insights for Cloud Spanner, a set of visualization tools that provide an easy way for developers and database administrators to quickly diagnose query performance issues on Spanner. Query insights users can now troubleshoot query performance in a self-serve way. By using out-of-the-box visual dashboards and graphs, developers can visualize aberrant behavior like peaks and troughs and various performance metrics over a time series and quickly identify problematic queries. 
Time series data provides significant value to organizations because it enables them to analyze important real-time and historical metrics. Yeah, I can imagine the graph now. Like the top half when uh, latency is high, it's like, this is your fault. And mm-hmm. the bottom half when latency is low, it's like, this is because we're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> has, literally has a line in the chart. Google's awesome. Your fault. You suck. Yeah. 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 for bad. That would be as, awesome. As a, as a product manager, though, this, this must be kind of disappointing to see a, a release that has to deal with people having problems with your, with your product. I mean, it's, 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 it's yeah. SQL. What do people, I mean, every person who ever written SQL code does terrible, <laughs> terrible job indexing or writing queries. So you always have to optimize the stuff no matter what. Even when the, it was fine when you had 10 records, it didn't scale to a million records. So, mm-hmm. well, yes, it's sort of annoying. It's also the reality of any relational database. And it's not really a product failing, right? It's, it's the query structure or the data structure every single time. And it's really just a tool to illustrate that fact to the people that are making these data structures and queries. And, and that's really the, the strength of it, I think. Support teams are going to rejoice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they're already used to those same tools, right? But performance <laughs> insights for RDS and all those other things. And they're very valuable in pointing the finger at somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you have a big launch, big product launch and the app team makes changes like weeks before everything's running great. And then all of a sudden, Oh, what infrastructure can't handle it. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Adds more CPU and memory used to be the solution. You see this recursive crap. Yeah. You see this recursive crap you're doing. Stop it. Select star from 27 million table joins. Are you sure? (laughs) No, no global database will scale up that kind of query. Uh, Well, in a topic that, you know, Jonathan argued was lightning round worthy. Uh, we I, have I would say first story. That is still true. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, but I don't. I don't know that the headline would have would have sparked the anger that was appropriate for our hosts about this particular topic. So the uh, the headline that would have been a lightning round was how to choose the right Azure services for your appliances. It's not A or B. Which yes, the jokes write themselves. Uh, it's <laughs> not Asia or either. <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah. A or B or Asia. Uh, but uh, you know, really, the bigger question that they're trying to answer, and the part that I thought we should talk about, is that Azure is trying to answer the age-old question of which of these services from Azure would be best for running my application on. And Azure contends that customers tend to think of the platform choices as either A or B choice. This is an outdated and based on the constraints of the on-premise world such as package software delivery models, significant upfront investments in infrastructure and software licensing, and long lead times required to build and deploy application platforms, all driven by Microsoft. So thank you for that to begin with. The better approach uh, possible on Azure, and they contend Azure is the best for this, is to provision and deprovision what you need when you need it if you don't have to choose. Instead, take the A plus B approach. An A plus B mindset simply means instead of limiting yourself to a predetermined service, you choose a service that means these your app needs. Choose the right tool for the job. If you want to learn more, there's a new Microsoft ebook that will help you transition to an A plus B mindset and learn, answer the question, what is the right service for my application? And I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting the pitchforks and I'm going to Redmond because I don't want to troubleshoot A plus B. I just want to troubleshoot A or B. So my you, upside is very angry. You missed my pre-show rant on this because, and I'm really glad that you know we've we've aligned on it because yeah, I, I could not have cringed harder when reading this article, because it speaks to someone who's never had to run an app in production. Right. And it's crazy to me that you would, you would propose like 
complete abstraction this way and then having it, you know, optimized to running on both little things and then not caring about the performance constraints or, or scaling constraints of these things and having that completely detached from the people writing and in control of the logic, managing where the data is stored. Like, it's just not realistic at all. This is, you know, it's, it's a new idea, which I liked, but it's not a good one. <laughs> well, it's like you know when your architecture team goes like, we're going to become a polyglot, and mm-hmm. all the dev people are like, yay, we're going to do Go, and we're going to do Python, and all the things mm-hmm. we always wanted to do versus that dumb Java, and all the ops yeah. guys are like, no, yeah. I hate you all, because we have to yeah. support it in production. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's exactly how I feel about this. Uh, but yeah, it just it, and it's also like the whole way that article is written on this, the tone is very... Well, now, children, you don't have to mm-hmm. choose, you know, Bobby or Tommy. You can ha- play with both of them if you share. Like, that's how yeah. it feels. Like, oh, like, it was very condescending. Yeah, yeah super agreed. condescending. So I, I will not be reading the ebook uh, <laughs> to find out how condescending that is. But, uh, you know, if there's an ebook and you're curious about A plus B thinking, uh, you know, Asia's got your back this week. I almost gave them my information just so that I could continue to complain about <laughs> Because I know I would read that book and just find even more data that I was like, this is horrible, wrong. I mean, it may be fun for you. You you talk about how you don't have anything to tweet about. It may be fun for you to download it. And as you're reading your real-time thoughts about the book in tweet form, might be might build your Twitter base, your Twitter base. You know? My potential. Ah, I like this idea. This may happen. Yeah, I, I would. I'd be there for it. I would yeah. follow along. Yeah, I, I don't know whether to apologize in advance to my forty-one followers or not, but we'll see. No, <laughs> no. this it's, honestly, it's, it's the kind of blog post, and there have been very few in the past few years. We've been doing this podcast where I actually wanted to go through line by line and annotate it, yeah, and then just publish the annotations. I mean, even even by the second line, I'm I'm scratching my head thinking, since when does technology choice d- define the budget you've got to spend? Like it never works that way. This is how much money we have. Figure out to make it work within yeah. within our constraints. It's not it's not Microsoft selling you something. And we needed it yesterday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Microsoft don't say, "Oh, this this will work for you." Well, sure, I'll just pull out the fifteen million dollars to cover that. It's the whole thing just seems backwards. Even even the premise of of uh, assuming that people come at these decisions from from this angle, like, "Well, it's got to be one or the other," but but never both. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I think that's good architects wouldn't approach the situation like that. It wouldn't be we can only have one one or the other. It would be yeah. what's what are the right tools for the job. And then do the you cloud, think what they meant? Do you think what they meant was that each application team running different applications that have different requirements should feel free to choose a different architecture that was optimized for that environment and not make the entire enterprise stick with a single architecture. Yeah, I mean, it's the right tool for the job, right, is what they're right. trying to argue. Right. And so you don't have to make the trade-off. If, if .NET is better for this solution or Go is better for that one, you know, it doesn't matter because the lock-in to you is not that expensive because right. if it doesn't work, you just throw it away. And it's no big deal. My, my beef of this is that, you know, with no semblance of standards, you end up with chaos. And from an operational mindset, the chaos is expensive and there's no factor into that conversation. It's only about the dev experience in this. And that's what kind of rubs me the wrong way. Cause I think it's, I think it's a holistic conversation of like, what is the service going to entail? How are we going to support it in production? You know, yes, the, the risk is less because I, I don't have the lock-in of, you know, I spent a billion dollars on Oracle licenses and I spent, you know, on Exadata, a bunch of stuff and I have all this committed spend. That's the sunk cost fallacy anyways. 
uh, I don't have that risk now. And so don't be constrained by that, which that's a fair conversation. But then I think there's, there's more to it than that. And I think that's where this sort of rubs me the wrong way is it's, it's looking at the wrong question and answer in my opinion. I think it's just a plea, really. It's hey, if you've had a bad experience with with this product from Azure, please don't leave. <laughs> please, please try this other one instead. Mm-hmm. Give us another. You got to give it to the marketing team though, who did the little graphic <laughs> with the two the two brains and the one thinking A or B is just thinking about little blocks, and the one that's thinking A plus B is thinking about this beautiful city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if only they had those guys they, working they on it. the services. <laughs> Yeah, they read. I mean, they read this thing. They're like, "We we got to come up with a graphic, guys. Let's go." Yeah, yeah. I uh, I, I was thinking about you know Amazon's nineteen ways to run a container, and I was like, "That's right. You should just do all nineteen ways of running a container. Why yeah. why bother choosing one of those many ways? Just you know, use a little EKS over here, use a little ECS over there, a little SageMaker container action <laughs> over there. What could go wrong? What could go wrong?" build a little randomization to your developer platform so that you're you know no one actually knows which technology yeah. this is running on. oh yeah and then then yeah. then they'll be forced to make it run on all of them and then actually our job will be a lot easier no or that's now <laughs> the worst work. story of cloud agnostic <laughs> ever i don't, I don't really know <laughs> i mean I, I like the graphic and everything but i i think the the five things they've chosen to put in the a or b or the a plus b category you could argue both of all of those things for both sides. Totally. Yeah. It, yeah. But it's a good graphic. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great You're sandwich. missing the point, Jonathan. It's a good graphic. <laughs> I, I don't have much to do with sales, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it shows. Well, if I didn't excite you with A plus B, I'm going to really bore you with the new NVADA10 V5 GPU accelerated virtual machine now generally available on Azure this week. The V5, NVADS A10 V5, I don't know how you can pronounce that, uh-huh. features an NVIDIA A10 Tensor Core GPU, up to 72 AMD EPIC 74 F3 CPUs, vCPUs with clock frequencies up to 4 gigahertz, 880 gigs of RAM, and 256 megabytes of L3 cache, and simultaneous multi-threading, or SMT for short. Uh, if you'd like to get one of these brand new shiny boxes, a 6 vCPU, 55 gig of memory, and 180 gigs of storage, and one A10, uh, GPU is $331.42 pay-as-you-go per month or $145.83 on a three-year reserve. Or if you're like Ryan and you have an unlimited budget, you can get Woo. the 72 vCPU, 880 gb of RAM, 1,400 gigabytes of local storage, and two of those beautiful A10 processors for $4,759.60 on a pay-as-you-go or $2,094.22 on a three-year commit. But, but why? Why choose one or the other when you can have both? Right? <laughs> exactly. You got to have the small one it. and the expensive one. <laughs> I was trying to figure out what the acronym stood for based on the current crypto mining disaster. And I was thinking, not no longer very attractive to diggers. <laughs> nice. Nice. Maybe. Nice. Uh, maybe. It's, it's, Where were you when we were doing show titles? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how long it's uh, going to yeah. be. You know, these some some of the bigger instances are getting pretty expensive. I mean, it's not in the twenty thousand dollars a month class or the fifty thousand dollars a month class yet. But I'm kind of wondering if there's going to be like a buy now pay later kind of option where, like, <laughs> I, I want to use this machine for for a week, but I'd like to spread the cost out over the next twelve months, please, because my my mm. uh, my budget doesn't afford all that money. In my yeah, guy. really. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, that's. I'm only I mean, half joking when I say find a reseller. <laughs> <laughs> They'll set you up. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess Google already kind of did a similar thing, didn't they? But with their sort of fixed pricing plan, they adjusted it the following year. But that was only for storage. That wasn't for a computer, I don't think. It was not. So, yeah. I mean, Google's tried a lot of things to get customers to give them a shot over AWS and Azure, and you know that's third-party mover stuff you got to do. So, but, uh, there you go. All right, Peter, you want to take us to the lightning round? All right, let's start with public preview. Azure Ephemeral OS disk support for confidential virtual machines. Nothing's more confidential than the data that I deleted when I deleted my instance of ephemeral storage. Thanks. <laughs> Confidential and ephemeral. So it's like Snapchat, but for OS. Cool. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. I, I had the same kind of thing. I'm not going to repeat it. I'm not going to win that one. <laughs> Announcing the availability of AWS Outposts Rack in Panama. They really kept that under their hat. <laughs> 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 I was just thinking the outpost wanted a shortcut to the other side of America, so that's why it's going to Panama. Oh I was going to just change the lyrics to a Van Halen song and then sing them horribly, so I'm going to spare everyone. If you that. did, you would have won the whole round. There's <laughs> <laughs> still time. Yeah. Get one of those guitars off the wall, too. Play yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, AWS data mic. Uh, database migration service now supports your favorite modern database, IBM DB2 ZOS as a source. So you can learn that no modern database it performs as well as DB2. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> and while we're at it, AWS, uh, AWS database migration service also supports Babelfish for Aurora Postgres as a target. Which can only mean that Babelfish is getting more real because now they actually want to move people from SQL Server to Babelfish for Postgres, which, if that's true, I'm here for that. Mm -hmm. Kill SQL Server. Both these features are just from a product team going, oh, yeah, well, what's your excuse now to not move? You know? <laughs> I just just one, one customer, they're like, we're going to move. We're going to move off of DB2. We're going to move off of DB2. Great, great. We're going to help you. We're going to move off. We did it. We moved off of DB2. Where are you moving to? SQL Server. No! <laughs> no! I hope they're moving to Aurora if they're moving using DMS to move off of DB2 because the only thing that's going to get close to scaling as well is, is Aurora. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to say, Ryan, <laughs> takes it. Even though he didn't sing, he still takes it. Well done. Well done. <laughs> I probably could have lost the point in the singing. Yeah, it could have. <laughs> yeah, never. You can never lose a point singing. I mean, I was going to do the spoken interlude part of Panama. So, <laughs> uh, well, uh, last week uh, I said that Reinforce had just happened and nothing got announced, and that's because it hadn't happened yet. Because yeah. in my brain, it was already July and it was only June still. So that was my fault. So Reinforce is still coming up at the end of July in Boston, uh, July twenty sixth through the twenty seventh. Uh, and then we have Black Hat USA coming right after that, August 6th through the 11th, and then VMworld coming up at the end of August, right before Labor Day, uh, August 29th through December 1st. Uh, Google Cloud Next is October 11th to 13th. I did try to, to probe my uh, Google sales rep to see if I could find out when tickets are going on sale, and he did not know. So, <laughs> fail. Complete fail. But you can buy your uh, reInvent tickets because those are available and for sale for you right now. So if you want to go to reInvent, those tickets are available to you. Uh, and that is November 28th through December 2nd. 
Uh, unfortunately, you will not find me at reInvent, nor do I think you'll find Ryan or Jonathan, as I think we're going elsewhere to call Peter remotely from our undisclosed location to uh, get our man-on-the-street reporting from reInvent Live. So that's our plan. <laughs> we're sticking to it. We had to find a place to go. We should probably do that soon. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Right, yeah. Details, details, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, that's that's all the cool stuff coming up really quick here. Uh, and it's another fantastic July. It's hot. It's summertime. Uh, and I assume that you are not listening to us on your vacation. But if so, enjoy the rest of your vacation. <laughs> and have a great one. Another week in the cloud. In the books. Bye, everybody. Take it easy. Later, Gators. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Thank you.